Hello and welcome to Music Works. Have you had to cope with a disability in your creative and professional life? Have you ever wondered what it must be like to build a career as a performer who may be visually impaired? Today we are privileged to welcome Christina Jones who styles herself the blind soprano. As well as being an accomplished vocalist who trained in both the US and the UK, Christina is active in the Performing Arts Division of the National Federation of the Blind in the US, where she uses her time to help fellow blind performers learn about and use the resources available to them. Christina shares her own musical journey with us, but also gives us a fascinating insight into her work as a consultant advising opera, theatre and film on how to present blind characters and represent that experience. Embodying the NFB tagline, Live the Life You Want, Christina has a tremendous story to tell about how she has learned to navigate the world as a musician and a blind person and how she now uses that wisdom to advocate and raise awareness in the wider community for an empowered and enriched life as a performing artist who happens to be blind. And stay tuned for a cameo appearance by Bradford, Christina's wonderful guide dog. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Music Works is generously supported by Alliance Musical Insurance the UK's number one musical instrument insurer. Alliance offer a team of musical experts who understand musicians' needs and lifestyles, especially helpful during the strange times we're in. You can get cover for all types of instruments and musical equipment with protection against accidental damage, loss, theft and more. And, unlike home insurance, there's no excess to pay on instrument or accessory claims. At the moment, Alliance have a special online offer with two months free cover. Not only that, every Alliance music policy now includes free legal assistance and support, so you can protect yourself both as a musician and in your personal life. Find out more at alliancemusic.co.uk. Alliance, serving the music community since 1960, proud to be the insurer of choice for over 70,000 musicians. And so now we'll go over to the Music Works studio to meet the blind soprano, Christina Jones. Welcome, Christina. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, so this is Christina Jones, and Christina is um, the blind soprano, as uh, as you can see on the screen. If you're watching, there uh, we've put her website up here, blindsoprano.com. Um, Christina and I met oh, probably over a decade ago at a singing summer school um, in Scotland um, and so I'm really excited to reconnect with you today. Um, it's so great that you could join me. Um, so why don't you tell us, if you don't mind, a bit about yourself and a bit about what you've been up to um, in your life as a soprano? So well, I since since we since we met, um, <laughs> I I moved back to the states. Um, I was I was studying in London for a bit at the Royal Academy of Music, and I moved back to the states and I was doing the freelance uh, soprano thing, and um, a lot of what I ended up doing was consulting with different um, consulting with different. Uh, you know, companies like Netflix and uh, ABC and things like that, um, and different opera companies to build uh, characters who were blind or being portrayed as blind. Um, and, you know, alongside that performing. So I did a lot of concerts and uh, disability awareness specific concerts, as well as um, different cabarets. <laughs> 
and as well as different film projects. Um, so I did a lot of that as well as teaching. Um, and a, a lot of what I've been focusing on more lately is advocacy through performance and not necessarily just advocacy, but, you know, raising awareness and telling my own story through performance. Fabulous. So, um, going, so going back, um, through your, your freelance singing career, um, kind of advocacy and, um, advising organizations has always been part of your, your career. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Um, you mentioned, um, working on characters, blind characters with opera companies, were they, were they for new operas that were being written or uh, reimagining of, of existing characters? A bit of both. Um, so more recently, I, I consulted with an opera company based in Utah, and that was kind of interesting because they, they had a, uh, a character who was, it, it was based on a true story, and this character is blind, and it was important to them to have an actual blind performer do this, but because of COVID, it's, you know, um, <laughs> they couldn't fly anybody out. So what they ended up doing was they had a dancer embody the movements and such of, of this particular character, and then they had um, an actual blind singer um, sing the role and record it. Um, and every, you know, all the musical aspects of the show were pre-recorded. So, you know, so that, you know, thing, different projects like that. Um, and I've also, you know, done a couple of uh, consultations, I guess you could say, um, with companies who want to reimagine a character um, as blind. And so we construct everything from there. Usually, usually I've worked mainly with film stuff. <laughs> um, the opera company stuff has been more recent. And a lot of what I've done with opera companies or choral societies is more talking to them about uh, equity and diversity uh, in the practice room and rehearsal space and audition room. So that's, that's a lot of what I've started to do more of. Brilliant. I'm going to come back to that in a minute before I get too detailed while we're still sort of getting to know about your fantastic career. And so uh, you relocated recently, I believe. I did. <laughs> Tell us what you're doing now. So I am now the membership building coordinator for the National Federation of the Blind. And uh, the NFB is uh, an organization that is primarily a grassroots organization. So it's it has a lot of branches and things like that on the local level for people to join. Um, and we are an organization that is the largest organized blind movement, so to speak. And a lot of what we have done is in the civil rights category. Um, we work with a lot of legislation. We work with a lot of social justice issues, specifically when it comes to blindness and making sure that the bar is kept on an equal level with our sighted peers, but also with the understanding that we need to make progress toward um, further equality uh, before that can happen. So, um, so our, you know, one of the taglines that we have is live the life you want. Um, and basically, in saying that we're talking about um, you know, not letting our blindness define us, but letting what we want to do 
define ourselves and our path and letting the blindness be an aspect of that, that we figure out how to navigate. Yeah, that's interesting because so we were just having a discussion just before we started recording about this and we talked about this in both the context of advising on fictional characters and also in the importance of that in in people's real lives, the um, the need for blindness not to be the one and only defining feature about a person and not to be mm-hmm. whilst being, being acknowledged and accounted for and supported not to be limited in ways that it wouldn't be could you could you tell us a bit about you know some examples maybe of how of, of where this has come up the kinds of uh, work that you do either in film or in real life yeah okay so for example i i worked with um there's a show called aj and the queen on netflix and one of the characters is coco butter and he is a blind diabetic drag queen <laughs> and um So one of the things that we did was when I was speaking to the guy playing um, Lewis is the character's name. um, We talked about what, you know, what his life experience was. We talked about, you know, when did you go blind as a character? When, you know, how old were you? What was your cause of blindness? Things like that. And that would dictate how he would physically navigate the world And, you know, it was really funny because I, you know, I met him at his house um, the first time we met and, uh, you know, to to go over character stuff. And, you know, I had to teach him how to put on makeup as a blind person (laughs) and, you know, among other things. And I like walked him up and down the hallway showing him how to use a cane, you know, things like that. And just um, really letting the the characterization um, dictate how he moved for one, but also the fact that this is a you know it's it's a role that's a more comedic role for one so you know some of his movements and things like that and some of what he said was going to be a bit outlandish and ridiculous just like it's going to be for every other character you know it's going to be somewhat caricature-esque in its portrayal but not necessarily you know and but we that said we also made sure that his blindness was not going to be the butt of the joke, but that it was just an aspect of him as a character. Mm. Um, and then he also, you know, as a character had different, you know, more serious moments and things like that. And we let, you know, we let those, we let the script guide um, our character decisions, you know, just like it would do for any other character. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, so the, the blindness isn't the defining features mm-hmm. it's part of the um the narrative and it would be very strange in a comedy like that if everyone else was outlandish and the, the blind character was completely straight exactly <laughs> um, exactly that's fascinating and so when did you start doing this kind of work um you know did you have you always done it did you you know spend some time what was your journey like as a singer as a blind singer I'm thinking of the question I'm trying to ask <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so I mean I did and didn't I think you know before I really avoided doing this kind of thing like the plague because I was you know I wanted to be taken seriously as a soprano I wanted to be taken seriously as a musician which is you know what all of us want we want to be we don't want to be a gimmick we don't you know and things like that and I I felt like by me putting I guess like moving forward in the world with my blind foot first 
if that makes any sense, I was, I was afraid that I would become a gimmick and that I would be cheapening myself as a product. <laughs> and, um, but that said, um, that was a lot of times that was the hang up that a lot of people would be, you know, focused on. Cause I'd walk into an audition space or something and it, like a lot of my interview questions, you know, I'd pass the, I'd pass the audition bit fine. And, you know, they had no problems with the way I sang or whatever, but I'd get into uh, the interview and all they would ask me were blindness based questions. And it, you know, at one point I remember thinking like, why can't they ask me anything about music <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or something, you know, cause then I felt weird. And so eventually at one point I, I hit a bit of a wall and, you know, I realized that um, there was a lot of ableism within myself. And, you know, how could I expect other people to move past this if I wasn't moving past it myself? And so I started, you know, when I embraced the title, I guess you could say, of the blind soprano and really putting it out there. Because, you know, frankly, I have a really generic name, Christina Jones, and I don't look like a Christina Jones. Um, so a lot of people would, you know, refer to me in passing as, oh, oh, are you talking about the blind soprano? You know, so then I yeah. just, okay, fine, you know, whatever. That's, that's just what I'm going to go by. <laughs> so, um, so that's, that's what I started doing. And um, when I started doing that, all of a sudden I started getting all kinds of work. And, uh, and that was really like, I, I could have kicked myself <laughs> Why didn't I just, why didn't I just accept this sooner? Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, and, you know, I would go into auditions with a different mindset and it wasn't, and all of it was not just ableism on the, on the part of the panelist or whatever, but it was also ableism within myself that I had to kind of navigate through. And it was also how, you know, how I was approaching things, you know, I would go into audition rooms and things like that. Um, and, you know, I do my audition thing and I would put it forward first. I would say, do you have any questions about my blindness? Obviously, I am blind. Like, you know, and do you have any? And I would be pretty uh, crass about it because, I, you know, I wanted them to know that I had a bit of a sense of humor about it. I didn't want them to be like, oh, my God, she, we're going to offend her. You know, so I, I didn't want people to be uncomfortable. So I would just say, do you have any questions about how I wipe my butt or how I learn my music? <laughs> you know, things like that. And they were just like, and they'd laugh and they'd usually say, no, I think we're good. And, you know, I, you know, and someone, you know, I remember there was one audition that I, I could have cried afterwards, you know, with how well it went because one, you know, and by that, I mean, a lot of times whenever I've gone into an audition room, a lot of people will ask during the interview process, you know, how do you learn your music? And it's like, well, I mean, I, that's a valid question, but it's also, that's not necessarily a question that somebody would ask, for example, you, when you walk into an audition room, they, they automatically assume that you can navigate your way around a piece of music. And, <clears throat> you know, I remember walking into an audition room once and, you know, at the end I said, do you have any questions about how I learn music, how I wipe my butt, etc." you know, and she was just kind of like, well, um, you went to the Royal Academy of Music and got your master's. I'm pretty sure I can trust that you can navigate your way around a piece of music. And I was just like, hallelujah. <laughs> Thank you. And so, you know, and, and from then on, I just started being more comfortable with 
you know, going in at it as, you know, raising awareness for one, but, put, you know, pu putting my music forward first, putting what I do first, and then, and being okay and comfortable with the fact that my blindness is going to be an aspect of things that people see, and that's okay. And letting people ask those questions and keeping the lines of communication open. Mm. So it sounds as though you've um, developed a way of sort of guiding people to be comfortable with your blindness and mm -hmm. by then, you know by set by by you setting the parameters about how this is talked about this makes it easier for people who are probably struggling with their own either experience or lack of experience and wondering how to kind of tackle them um you know the, the question how do you learn your music i mean as soon as anyone thinks about it is so clearly not a question that you would ever need to ask someone in, mm -hmm. who, who has reached these kind of audition situations that you were in um, but it's just kind of, um, I guess, sort of slightly, well, it's sort of thoughtless, isn't it? And as soon as they think, do I need to ask this? Because you've asked them, mm -hmm. presumably they just think, actually, no, I don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, so it like, depends on yeah. too, though. It, it just, I think it depends, because I don't want to discourage people from asking that question, because it's a, it's a valid question. Like, if somebody doesn't know that, braille music exists that's fine if somebody doesn't realize and, and that also not everybody knows braille music i i am lucky in the sense that i i do know braille music um but you know i'm also not above going to a coach and say please plunk this out for me yeah of course yeah absolutely no i, I what i meant i didn't mean that you would I, I think that it sounds as though by presenting like a humorous and kind of Mm -hmm. open approach that you're actually making it a lot easier for people to ask the questions that they need to because actually if someone was wanting to ask you know there's this bit in the staging how would this be for you mm -hmm. you've already or something like that you they've already got past that kind of um you know mm -hmm. allowed to ask questions essentially yeah um i was wondering would you be able to explain ableism in case anyone listening to this podcast um isn't aware of that term um ableism is basically a set of prejudice um so to speak pre um preconceived notions about how somebody navigates the world with a disability um, or any kind of ability. Um, and I know for, for me, I personally have some internalized ableism. Um, and I know, you know a lot of other people have ableism that they're not necessarily sure of, but it's a, it's a journey that all of us take. You know, just it, and it's the same thing with like racism, things like that. It's, we we learn to navigate those things and you know we have to acknowledge it first that it exists and then work towards pulling those down within ourselves so ableism is something that a combination of um you know you might have some within yourself people you're talking to might have some within themselves but also there might be assumptions between the two of you that would contribute to this as well is that right correct and yeah. you know and also but that said you know everything like i said um everything should and could be ironed out by communicating um and i i know i've done a lot of pr productions where we weren't either neither of us were sure of how to figure out how a piece of staging would work or whatever and and we're like oh maybe we could do this to make it work. And a lot of times the really great, um, the, the great methods were not thought up by the blind person, me, you know, they were thought up by the director or something. And I, I remember there was one, one 
uh, one semester when I was at uh, when I was going to school at Cal State Fullerton, where I was portraying Despina, and um, they wanted her to be very, very active. And I was just like, "That's great, but I don't know if I can skip around in circles and circles and cir- circles and not fling myself off the stage." And so, you know what, you know, and they were just like, "Well, she's a maid. Why don't you use this duster, and it can kind of be." your cane so to speak and I didn't use it like a cane but I was a very aggressive duster and I was a very (laughs) bad maid so you know so so we just made that part of my shtick you know as that character and she's a comedic role so it works you know and you know so like like I said again there's you know letting the letting the drama and the character dictate how this how the staging and things like that are navigated I can imagine uh, an aggressively dusting Despina being entirely <laughs> appropriate. To the exactly. That, yeah, that's <laughs> um, brilliant. Um, so, so I wanted to ask, because it occurred to me when you were talking about um, working with directors in that way, there must be um, a heightened level of trust involved, potentially, in terms of being able to work with people honestly and say, this mm-hmm. is going to work, this isn't going to work. Because I know this is something that... Um, comes up a lot obviously in artistic relationships when is is you know the level of which you feel okay with saying to somebody okay I see that this is your artistic vision but actually this is not going to work for me either for practical reasons or for whatever else do you Mm -hmm. find that that is um is a a thing that you have to deal with yes I mean I think it takes it definitely takes a lot of trust and comfortability to be able to communicate that openly and you know specifically say I, you know, I want to make your vision work for this, but I don't know how, you know, can we figure this out together? And, you know, um, for instance, like going back to Despina, um, you know, speaking, and that was different too, because it was an educational setting as opposed to a professional setting, um, you know, in, in specifically saying, I don't know how this works. So, you know, with an educational setting, we're more comfortable with saying, how are we going to do this? Whereas with a professional setting, we're going to hesitate because we want, we want to automatically be, yes, yes, I can do this. Yes. You know, and we want the, the goal is to be hired back. But at the same time, I think that the only way to be hired back is to openly communicate, you know, and make sure that everyone's comfortable with communicating. Um, and I think it's no different from somebody saying, hey, you know, I'm going to be five minutes late because I have to pick up my child or something, um, you know, from rehearsal. And nobody nobody thinks anything of that. Or, you know, can I come in early to warm up or something like that? Nobody, nobody thinks anything of that. Uh, you know, whereas if I came along and said, you know, can I come 10 minutes earlier or five minutes earlier so I can get to know the set, you know, the set, you know, and for me, I personally start to go, oh my gosh, they're going to be upset. They're going to be mad that I asked this and blah, blah, blah. And that's, you know, it's just anxiety on my part with navigating that. And that's not fair because that's not necessarily something that the director said, I'm going to have a problem with this. It's something that I am projecting onto them. Yeah, although, you know, it's also based on um, complex lived experience, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, absolutely. We can we can make assumptions, and others can make assumptions. But it sounds as though you've developed a really 
a way of being really true to yourself and um and your abilities which is actually very inspiring i think for um many artists that are dealing with problems like that um without a disability because the ability to go to someone and say it or to go into a rehearsal setting or a professional setting and say this is me and you know i'm setting the tone for how how you should deal with me is very very challenging mm-hmm. um I don't want for a second to suggest that it's been easy for you, but I think it's very inspiring that this is, um, you know, to put this out there as actually a way of, of finding better work. Because what you're describing is um, is that once you um, started using the, um, the the name, the blind soprano, they kind of unlocked your ability to be um, mm-hmm. more comfortable in the workspace. Definitely. Um, and uh, and that's what people are looking for. You know, they're looking they're looking for this way of going into work and being like this is a full me you know mm-hmm. at my best so it's, it's really great to hear um how you've done this and how you've achieved that um well thank you, you. <laughs> <laughs> really wonderful um and yes because the creative solutions you're thinking of are of course exactly that you know they are to do with um blindness in this case but but coming up with creative solutions is what opera and classical music and stage work and film is all about exactly um and uh i wondered yeah if if you had any more thoughts about about that and perhaps in the context of um how easy it's been to sort of um, take that and apply it into the advocacy work and the um, advisory work that you've been doing Um, it's actually, I, you know, I really love, um, the advisory work and the advocacy work. I don't get me wrong. I still, I I do love performing and I still do it quite a lot, but, um, there's, there's a special place in my heart for this advocacy stuff because it's one thing for me to go around and do things, but it's another thing for like a student, for example, to go, you know, go in and say, you know, I want to be able to do this. And, you know, I want my my dream is basically to have more and more visibility with the blindness community, the disabled community in general. But, um, you know, so that people start to see us and recognize us as a part of the community that we're not, you know, and we're not going to be shoved away, so to speak, and kind of tucked away into corners. You know, the more and more we see people in the arts, whether it be on uh, um on stage, film, you know, in literature, et cetera, that are portrayed um, accurately, you know, not, doesn't have to be respectful. It just has to be accurate. (laughs) 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 Uh, But the more and more people who, you know, portray us accurately um, and the more we are able to do those roles, you know, the more we're able to be, uh, you know, socially included and, visible to everybody and the more and more someone will say hey you know oh I saw this blind character on whatever and they were a lawyer or they were a this or they were a that you know and it's absolutely possible why not you know because I think you know once we start getting more visibility with the disabled community the more and more that's going to trickle out outward into everything else and that's you know that's that's what I want moving forward and you know I I absolutely think that the arts is a vital way to go with that yeah the arts is a vital tool for spreading this message isn't it Mm -hmm. um 
and and you yeah visibility is so important to us here as well we talk about it all the time the ability to see yourself in these places where you might not have done otherwise is is just so important obviously people like mm-hmm. you and that's why i think it's it's just phenomenal that um anyone who is um blind and going through music college or considering going to music college or anything like that is able to see um what you're up to and say you know you know here's an example uh, <laughs> how you know how we can navigate this industry so uh, mm-hmm. congratulations on that that's well thank you <laughs> it's been fun it's been a fun journey i bet yeah um, you haven't told us any stories about your dog on this podcast, and I think that you should because I'm <laughs> constantly entertained by the tales of your guide dog on Facebook. And my colleague Graziana in the chat here, who is dog mad, is going yes. Oh my gosh! Let me actually here. Let me let me get you a let me get you a shot of Bradford. <laughs> so my current guide is called Bradford. He's quite new with me. Can you see him? Um, we can't quite see him. Oh, here he is. Oh, he's gorgeous. <laughs> <laughs> he's lying on his bed in the corner. Super chill. Oh, I think he knows I'm talking about him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, no, he's, so all of my guides, all of my poor guides have been fabulous. And I, you know, don't get me wrong. I, there is nothing wrong with using a cane and I am very much comfortable with using a cane but my preferred mode of transportation is definitely um, walking on six legs. So um, I like having my fluffy pair of peepers with me. And, uh, you know, and I, I personally don't feel like I could do what I do without these fabulous dogs, um, you know, because, you know, a lot of what we do in the music world and such, the entertainment industry is travel and, you know, traveling to places I've never been to, will never go back to, will, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. is, is definitely odd. And it's really convenient to be able to have a dog that I can say, Hey, find door or find elevator or find escalator. And they'll, they'll just whoop, ream right over to it and kind of bounce around happily. Cause they're so excited that they did, they did their yeah. job. <laughs> Yeah. That's wonderful. No, absolutely. I love walking on six legs. That's such a fantastic <laughs> phrase. Oh, my chat here is going crazy. Everyone in the background is going, we love him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's such a lot of unfamiliarity in uh, a freelance classical music life, isn't there? Different places, different buildings, different sets, etc. Oh, so, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I definitely ask a lot of my dogs. So, you know, I, I ask them you know, cause not a lot of dogs can handle, um, that kind of lifestyle. Um, but I've been really, really lucky to be matched with dogs that are able to handle that lifestyle for one, but love that lifestyle. They love new things. And I mean, my, my dog now, um, gets really bored very quickly. Like if I walk a route twice, he's like, what are we doing? And he starts dragging his <laughs> paws cause he gets so bored. And I'm like, are you kidding me? You actually drag your paws? Come on, keep going. <laughs> And so then, you know, so then he gets like all these treats that are fabulous because, you know, every time he does something and when he gets bored, he starts to do other, try to do other things to encourage me to give him treats when he does behave. So I'm like, no, no, come on, keep going. So he, so he's a, he's a grand manipulator. So we're still getting to know each other. A grand manipulator. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, that's just what you want in, you know, your... In my your... relationship. Yes. <laughs> particular um 
things that guide dogs need to learn in order to help you with a classical music career? Like, do you actually bring them onto sets or into opera? Um, that kind of thing? I haven't. So, you know, it's funny because I've brought, I've brought my dogs onto film sets and I've brought them onto stage during like a core, you know, a choral performances, but never, never an actual opera production. Um, usually they end up either like sleeping on a quilt in either in the house or in um or like backstage or like in the green room or something you know um and they they basically have to be all right with settling and staying quiet (laughs) um and they also have to be comfortable with me walking away from them for long periods of time because other dogs don't handle that very well um and and to be honest with you because it's such a close relationship you know, initially, especially in the beginning of a partnership and the first several times it happens, you know, the first several times I walk away from them, um, it, there's a lot of confusion because they're like, wait, where, where are you going? What are you doing? What, are you, what Do you need my help? Why are you walking over there? Oh my God, lady, you're going to die. What are you doing? I'm not over there to save you. Come on. You know, so there's, there's a lot of that going on and they stand up and, you know, some of them might like, I know, um, Kingsley, you met, you met Kingsley. Um, yeah. the first time I had him, the first several months I had him, I wanted to kill him because, <laughs> <laughs> because, um, I, I, I went, I was on stage and then all of a sudden I heard this massive bark from off stage and I was like, <gasps> you jerk. <laughs> and then like, I remember he barked a few times, he barked his head off cause he was very concerned that I was walking around this platform. And so in mid, like mid dress rehearsal, I was just like, Kingsley, quiet. And he was just like, you know, and, um, but, you know, and he heard me and he was like, oh, I guess she's fine. You know, (laughs) but, you know, so in the beginning, you know, it's really important to set them up for success by, you know, like with Kingsley, I learned that I needed to leave like my bag or my coat or something behind. So he had my Mm -hmm. scent with him. And, you know, with Bradford, he's pretty, and it just depends on the dog, you know, and, and I have to practice, like, you know, when I go to guide dog school, I have to practice leaving them alone for a little bit and figuring out what works for them. Um, and then, you know, when I practice at home or, you know, in, in a larger space, I'll tie them down and practice walking away from them so that they get used to it really quickly. Um, and then, you know, and then I, every once in a while, I wander that and give them back and give them food so that they're like, oh, this is a great thing. And then I'll leave their bone behind or like a favorite rubber, you know, like rubbery toy that doesn't make too much noise. Um, So a lot of it is just keeping them settled and keeping them comfortable. But a lot of it too is, um, um, you know, for for a film set specifically or any kind of, you know, travel or whatever, they, they just have to be pretty resilient and they have to be they they cannot be easily spooked you know because strange things happen on sets so I mean they can be curious they can be like what's going on you know but they can't be jumpy yeah exactly because I was thinking I mean presumably a a a kind of um not being bothered by or affected by music going on or I guess also like loud noises and Mm -hmm. unexpected lots of unexpected people around and so on and so forth must all Mm -hmm come into it that's so interesting do you think that's is it unusual for um I mean this is potentially not a good question because blind people could do literally anything but is it unusual for guide dogs to have to cope with their 
owner or the the um the person they're looking after to uh, mm-hmm. to to kind of leave them for periods of time, or is that quite a common part of the training? It's it's a pretty common part of the training. We're supposed yeah. to kind of let them be, so otherwise they're going to develop separation anxiety and all that. But it yeah. you know it depends on the person too. It depends on the job that they have. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like there there are plenty of massage therapists who will leave their dog in like a, a crate or something like a pop-up crate that they take with them. Um, and they can leave them in that crate while they work with their clients. Or, um, you know, when I was, when I was studying in London, I, I worked at a restaurant. Um, I, w- I was working at Don Le Noir, which is a dining in the dark restaurant. And, uh, you know, I, I would leave Kingsley upstairs on tie down while I was serving, you know, while I was doing the, the waitressing thing. And, uh, and then I go back up and grab him, you know, so that they have to get comfortable at one point with being left to their own devices, but some dogs are better than others with being left in stranger places. And, you know, for me, I, as a handler, you know, we have to be, we have to be good about figuring out what the dog needs and, you know, like, okay, you know, trying a few things like, you know, and setting them up for success. Like for me, I will take, I've started taking like a quilt and it's easily foldable and I stick it in my bag. Um, And I take that quilt with me into training so that the moment they meet me, um, they have this quilt and like, it starts to become this very solid part of their life. And so, um, and I take it with me in rehearsals. I take it with me to work. I take it with me to, you know, like wherever, and it becomes home for them. So then, you know, whenever we go into a green room and I have to leave them alone, I pull out the quilt, I pull out their toy, you know, and I set them up there. And if they need something more, like if they need to be tied down with, you know, with one of my articles of clothing so that they know I'm coming back, you know, or something, that's something that we try. Or if they need me to check in with them and make sure that they're all right between, um, between sets or whatever, then I'll, then I'll do that. But it, you know, it depends on the dog. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's it's just something that um, must be, yeah, you sound like you put an awful lot of thought and effort into working out how to make the dogs really comfortable and how to make this a, a situation that works. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely ask them to do a lot, so yeah. I ask them to do a heck of a lot. So it's like, you know, the, the least I can do <laughs> is, you know, make sure that they're happy and comfortable. Oh, well, from, from the stories I read on Facebook, they, you always look like you're having a great time with your dog. <laughs> Definitely. Or at least they're having a great time with you, anyway. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to round up shortly, but I just had one question about um, inclusivity and grassroots. So uh, uh, something that we talk about a lot on here is, is bringing things, uh, bringing the understanding that we're developing about all sorts of inclusivity problems in classical music. Mm-hmm. Um, so that they're you know made of what so that they're being dealt with further further down the for earlier in people's careers in people's training in people's musical lives. Do you have mm-hmm. any any headlines on um, what organisations can be doing to make sure that um, blind people are fully welcome and integrated into classical music at grassroots level? I think the main thing I would say is you know don't be afraid of don't be afraid of casting a person who's blind, but also don't be afraid of altering the script and saying, you know what, the script does not say that this person is not blind. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, let's, let's take a different tack or, you know, or something, you know, and, you know, and also don't be afraid to hire someone who's blind and communicate with them. And if they're not sure of how things will work, you know, getting in touch with an organization or something that might know how, you know, different suggestions of how things might work. Um, And just always keeping the creative process in, in, you know, the priority, I guess, is my, my advice. That's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, Christina, thank you so much for sharing your experiences and providing your insights and inspiration. There's just so much here that needs to be heard. And I'm really pleased that Music Works has been able to um, help get the word out about you and your work as a singer and supporting the blind performing community. Thank you. If anyone thought this was going to be a solemn episode, we've laughed an awful lot. (laughs) If you're interested in following Christina, you can find out more about her and her work at theblindsoprano.com. Resources for the Blind can be found at the National Federation for the Blind in the US, nfb.org, and the Royal National Institute for Blind People in the UK, rnib.org.uk. Thank you so much for joining Music Works. I'm Katie Beardsworth, and it's been my pleasure to share this episode with you today. And thank you, Christina. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Music Works podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe, check out our other great episodes, and even better, leave us a review. You can also sign up to our mailing list at www.polyphonyarts.com forward slash mailing dash list for updates and news about what Polyphony Arts is up to for all you classical music folk out there. You can find more information in the show notes as well. Meanwhile, I'm Katie Beardsworth and I look forward to sharing with you the next great episode of Music Works. Music Works is generously supported by Alliance Musical Insurance, the UK's number one musical instrument insurer. Alliance Music Insurance, serving the music community since 1960, proud to be the insurer of choice for over 70,000 musicians. Music Works is a Polyphony Arts production. Thank you for listening. Thank you.